We've been talking about what it means to grow to know God deeply. Uh, I, was, I was out last week to finish the second part of that. I was sick, um, but uh, we're going to talk about the second part of that. We were saying, hey, there are a few things that prevent us from growing to know God. God deeply. Uh, we talked about hurry two weeks ago. Uh, hurriedness, busyness, uh, there's a struggle there, and we ended up landing on like, man, we got so much going on. Hurried sickness and busyness and distracted. We've got all these things in our culture, and we said hurry is incompatible with love because love is patient. And Jesus told us the greatest thing is to love him and to love others. The whole Old Testament hangs on this. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbors yourself. And if we are a culture ever growing in hurriedness and busyness and go, 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 is it possible that we are incompatible with love? We are growing less and less in love with the Lord and with others because we're so busy. We're too hurried, right? This week, we're going to talk about distraction. What prevents us from knowing him? Distraction. I want to read a couple verses to start off with. There's all sorts of uh, psychology and, and research about when, you, uh, when you're public speaking to have a learner readiness activity and like to say something goofy or to do something cool to kind of get everyone's attention. If you're in the education field, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You have to, you have to prepare everyone to learn because they ain't ready to learn, right? But we're going to let the word of God do that. Uh, I don't have a cutesy, funny story for you this morning. We're just going to read the Word of God. Is that okay? <laughs> it's like, everyone's like, oh, I don't know, actually. Hold on. <laughs> too strong, too fast, David. Calm down, cream shirt. Okay, here we go. Uh, John 10, verses 27, 28. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. Man, take that in. <laughs> May it be uncomfortable. May you ask all the questions. Do I hear his voice? Am I his sheep? What does his voice sound like? When's the last time I heard his voice? Good. Let that, just let that linger. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That word know there is the same one we talked about last week. It's gnosko. Say gnosko. It's Greek, and it doesn't just mean knowledge. There's another Greek word for that. This means an intimate connection between the knower and the object being known, right? And so a shepherd knows his sheep in the sense that he protects them. He lays down his life for them. Jesus says that, right? He can, he can count them. He knows when one's missing. He leaves the 99. You get the, all this. So there's an intimate language there, just like you know your spouse or you know your children. You might know a lot of facts about them, but if just listening the facts, was what it meant to know your children. You'd have a terrible relationship with your children, your best friend, your girlfriend, whatever it is, because to know them has intimacy. It has to. That's what this word means. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. John 17, three, this is eternal life. This life, this eternal life that Jesus says, I give them, they will never perish. This is it, eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. There's a lot of distraction that we experience in life. Uh, lots of things can distract us. And I think that, that you can relate to that. Uh, we'll look at all sorts of research here in a minute that might bore you, might get you excited, but you might be distracted by your cell phone. That might be your thing right now. And like God's brought you into this room to worship him, but it's like, dude, I just, I'm scrolling my cell phone. I'm going to check out because I've got to do this. I've got to do this. This is really important to me. So I'm going to be distracted by this thing. More on that here in a minute. Maybe you're distracted on, on the announcement change. You're like, hey, we don't do announcements out of the first song, Mr. David. And I gave you a look because that's not where that goes, right? I know. Okay. It's all my fault. Sorry. We're trying to shepherd things a little differently to make sure we emphasize the right parts of service and we don't let things be meaningless. I don't need, pfft, I don't need to explain that to you. You don't care. Maybe you're distracted by the cream colored shirt and you're like, that's not, that's not what I'm used to, right? I'm not into that coffee creamer, Dave, but hey, mother-in-law, I think it looks nice. My wife likes it. Get over it. There's lots of things that can distract us. Here's the goal. When we start talking about distraction and when we start like getting into the research and stuff, it's going to pull you into attention and it should. And you might want to get mad at me. You might want to walk out of here feeling guilt and shame and anger. Stop. No one in here is trying to tell you how to live your life so that we can just whip and abuse you into being the exact sort of perfect model of memorial life that we can make you be. That's not the goal. The reason anyone ever stands up here is to sing the word, to show the word, to preach the word, to pray the word. That's why we gather. And we're very passionate about that as shepherds, as worship leaders, as anyone who's ever up here in front of you. That's going to be their goal. And so what we want to emphasize, I'm going to say John 6:40. We're going to read a lot this morning, but here's the goal. For this is the will of my father, says Jesus. You want to know what God wants from you? Boom, here it comes. Everyone who looks on the sun 
and believes in him should have eternal life. And I'll raise him up in the last days. This is the will of my father. Everyone who looks at the son and believes in him. But we have all these distractions. One of the, uh, the big things, uh, every pastor does this, I find out. And actually, as a worship leader, I used to do this as well. Uh, I'd always ask, I always ask Nikki. She knows I'm going to ask her this question uh, this afternoon. She hates it. I say, hey, how, how, did, how do you think church went? And after this many years of marriage, she knows what I'm actually asking. I'm not asking her to tell me how great of a preacher I am, because that doesn't help me, right? Don't come up to me and say, David, you're just the best. I don't need to hear that. Don't compare me to some other pastor. That doesn't help my heart at all, right? What I want to know, and Nikki knows this, the question we actually ask. I teach our other shepherds to ask this question, the worship pastors. Was there anything distracting? Was there anything that I said or did? Was there anything that, that me got in the way of people hearing the gospel, right? Because distraction is inevitable. It's a known concept in church life that we're going to be distracted. Everyone writes books about it. Everyone talks about it. It's a known fact in the classroom, in the public school system, that you're going to be distracted. It's a known fact in the homeschool classroom that you're going to be distracted. It's a known factor in your work life that you're going to be distracted. Everyone knows that you're going to be distracted, right? And so we talk about that. I asked Nikki, hey, what, was anything distracting today? right? One of the best comments you can give anyone who's ever uh, trying to point you to look to Jesus is just to tell them how you were looking at Jesus. If you're like, man, I just don't want, I want to say something nice to one of the pastors or worship leader to care or something. Uh, you can come and say how awesome an event was, how great the food was. But if you tell us how you were able to look to Jesus today, boom, that's why we're here, right? That's why we do what we do. Amen. Sorry, I don't like, I don't like being the guy fishing for amens. That felt really off. Don't let me do that. Give me an awkward look every time I fish for an amen. Gosh. Uh, <laughs> So we have these distractions. I want to make this real for you, right? Because we're going to, again, we're going to get into research some tension. I want to make it real for you. So uh, it was uh, a week ago or so, because uh, I was sick, but I was doing some research on distractions and things in our culture, and I fell into the economy of attention, which we'll talk about here in a minute, and I just got so messed up, man. I pulled up, I was, it was a couple weeks ago, I mentioned the Jetsons. If you remember, I was talking about the Jetsons. You remember me mentioning the Jetsons? Shake your head yes. If you just, just even shake your head in general that like, okay, I remember you say things sometimes, David. So I was studying for a sermon on distraction and I got really distracted by the Jetsons. And I thought, man, when I was a kid, there was a Jetson movie in the 90s. I think it was 1993. Who here remembers the 1993 movie, The Jetsons, right? Spacey Space Sprockets and all that. Um, I was convinced there was a song at the end of that. And so I went on YouTube to find it and I was wrong. And so then I was like, what is that, that song? What is it? And I found it. Uh, it's by a girl named Belinda Carlisle. Remember anyone know Belinda Carlisle? What's the main song Belinda Carlisle sang? Ooh, heaven is a place on earth. Terrible theology. Ridiculous song. It's stuck in your head though now, isn't it? Ooh, baby, do you know what that's worth? Man, where's the drum? Gosh, it'll get stuck in your head. Bow, bow, tuk -a -tuk -a -bow. Anyway, so it was stuck in my head. Here's what happened. I pulled up a spreadsheet to kind of show this to you. I was going to show you my YouTube history, but that's not worth it. I don't want to break your heart. Here's what happened, though. This is why I was studying a sermon on distraction. I got on YouTube. I watched a Jetsons video for eight minutes, then another Jetsons video for one minute, then another one for a minute because I was interested in the trailer that we had in the 90s. You're laughing because you've done this. Then all of a sudden, it was like, Belinda, Carlisle. I saw an old version of the song. Then I saw a newer one for four minutes. Then I saw the newest version of Belinda Carlisle singing that song. And that led me to a video from The Wonders. Who here knows The Wonders? That thing you do, The Oneaters, that's for you who've seen the movie. So uh, The Wonders, right? That thing you do. I watched that video. Then I watched a newer video on that. Then I saw Ed Sheeran singing a song. And he sang the song Yesterday by The Beatles. Then he sang a song from Frank Sinatra on The Voice. And that got me to watch Rocket Man. And I was like, whoa, remember that song by and John, your song, right? I was like, oh, that's such a good song. So I looked up Ed Sheeran singing your song and he did a cover. And then I saw this guy on American Idol because I was told to watch this video. Then all of a sudden I was like two hours in, I watched an hour and a half of the voice videos. You see the voice one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I did this math. Studying for a sermon on distraction, I spent two hours and 57 minutes watching videos on YouTube. Who's been there? Come on! Yeah! And then you're just like, I'm just the grossest human. I'm a liar. Hey, I'm going to eat a pint of ice cream and go to bed. Right? Huh? Huh? Yeah! We don't have any ice cream right now. It's a problem. C.S. Lewis wrote this in the screw tape letters. This is one demon talking to another. It doesn't matter. Those of you who care, it's uh, screw tape talking to Wormwood. 
It's funny how mortals always picture us demons as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. If that fails, you must fall back on a subtle misdirection of their intention. We're not trying to put things in their brain. We're trying to keep things out. Distraction. Isn't that interesting? Bodie Bachman recently said, The modern church is producing passionate people with empty heads who love the Jesus they don't know very well. Oof. Listen, Proverbs 3, 5 through 7. I'm going to put it on the screen, but there's just a few underlined verses. You know these verses. You've seen them before. Do not lean on your own understanding. Be not wise in your own eyes. It's possible that we don't have as good a grip on distraction as we think we do. It's possible that we're missing something. Thank God he's brought us here to look at his scripture this morning. Let's be open-handed and let's not lean on our understanding. Let's not be wise in our own eyes. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would guide us as we look at your scripture, as we wrestle with distraction. We want to grow to know you deeply. We don't want to be distracted by uh, the timing of sermons, the, the, the things around us, our cell phones, uh, the, the, the burdens of the week, whatever it is, God, I pray that your spirit would push that out and that we would only see King Jesus. Amen. John six forty. for this is the will of my Father. Everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Let's talk about looking to Jesus in distraction. In 1973, a Nobel Prize was awarded to Nico Timbergen. Anyone heard of Nico Timbergen? Maybe in a psychology class. He developed or uh, he had research towards animal and human behavior called supernormal stimuli. Raise your hand if you've heard of supernormal stimuli. That's okay. Uh, I'm going to tell you all about it. So it's really interesting. So a stimulus, if you're familiar with psychology or just study in general, a stimulus is anything that triggers a specific behavioral response, right? You poke the rabbit and it like jumps or curls up or you poke the frog and it jumps. I don't know why I'm on jumping right now, but you do something and something else happens. That's a stimulus. So Tinbergen, he didn't, he didn't discover natural stimuli. What he did was he was able to clarify that not all stimuli are created equal. So here's what happened. He took the stickleback fish. It looks like this. See how it's got this little red underbelly right there? So what he discovered was that if he took a whole bunch of school of stickleback fish in, in a natural environment and he painted a piece of wood that looked kind of like it, but he painted a deeper, more vibrant red than what's red on there, then the male stickleback fish would have the same response as normal, only more aggressive. Stickleback fish, they're very territorial and they'll fight each other and they'll run into each other. If you ever see fish fight, it's hilarious because they just like... It's so funny. But it's all, what else are they going to do? They don't kick or anything. They're not ninjas. So... Everyone imagine a fish doing a ninja kick. Good job. Thank you. Okay. So he would put this wood in there and they would act intensely. It would be more than natural. It was super normal. It was above normal stimulus. He did the same thing with butterflies. He took a cardboard cutout and he brilliantly painted it better than a normal female butterfly, better than a normal, uh, all these other things. It was beyond what was natural. And all the male butterflies would flock to this fake butterfly, try to mate with it, land on it. And all the female butterflies are like, hey, what? What's happening here? And none of them made it. They died. They didn't reproduce in this, in this section because they, the males were all drawn to the supernormal. It was a supernormal stimulus. Same thing happened with uh, robins. Here's interesting, all of you with motherly instincts. He painted plaster eggs that looked more attractive, better than normal mother eggs. And the, uh, the mother birds would fly and they'd try to protect and warm those eggs, leaving their eggs to not be warmed and chill and die. Whoa, this is why I won a Nobel Prize. He said supernormal stimuli, they were named this because they, the intensified stimuli can elicit stronger preferential responses in animals over the natural stimuli. Now, I know you're smarter than birds and butterflies and stickleback fish. I'm smarter than it. We're above the animal creation. In fact, that's what God created, right? We are above creation, but beneath God. That's how God created us. That's a big deal. We were created to rule over creation. We are underneath the Lord, but he created us to rule, and we're above the animal kingdom, right? Take dominion, shoot the deer, grind the meat, R R R. right? That's us. I want to submit that supernormal stimuli has been something that's rippling in all of our culture because we all relate to it 
specific ways. Here's some modern-day supernormal stimuli. Uh, unhealthy junk food. There's a reason why you crave junk food, and there's a reason why it's junk food. It takes the natural things that we're supposed to consume, and it dresses them up to have more intensified versions of that, right? Have you ever eaten something that has more sugar, fat, and, and, and sustenance in it than anything else? Have you ever had a Krispy Kreme donut? Were you naturally created to eat Krispy Kreme donuts? No, and that doesn't mean they're fundamentally wrong. It just means that if you have one around, you're going to naturally desire it and want to eat it. That's why no one craves broccoli. Stop. I know you're the weird person. You're so significant. Oh, I'm the only person that craves healthy food. No one else but me craves it. That's fine. All neurological research says you're wrong. There's a reason why people crave junk food. It's because it's an intensive way to draw us to a super stimulus. Right? CDC, as of last year, says roughly two out of three of American adults are overweight. Two out of three, that's about 69%, and about one third are obese, that's 36%. Uh, and so that's, again, super normal stimuli of us wanting junk food. What about video games? Let's take that, man. Everyone's like, please don't step on my thing, man. Philip Zimbardo, you don't need to know him, but he's a, uh, a psychologist, a doctor for a Christian guy. He wrote a book on the crisis of masculinity. He concluded in a huge study that at least 10,000 hours is spent by your average male between, uh, well, until by the age of 21, is spent on video games. Let me say that differently because I feel like I botched it. So most males in here, if you're a male in here and you are approaching the age of 21 or you've recently passed the age of 21, maybe in your 30s, you fall into the two generations that has probably spent around 10,000 hours on video games. Do the math, not on your phone right now, but later on, do the math of 10,000 divided by 24 and see how many days that is, someone spending time playing video games, right? And he concluded, he said, man, we are losing an entire generation of men to porn, pot, and video games. These men who are going and saying, man, I want to achieve, I want to grow, I want to do more in the world, and I can do it with video games. It's a super normal stimuli. Andy Crouch calls it superpowers. If you play a video game, you can climb to the top of the mountain. I've done it. Zelda Breath of the Wild. Man, increase. Get to the top. Fight the bad guy. And then I go in the real world and I can't climb a mountain. And I can't fight the bad guy. So I need more video games. Because <laughs> they, they give me a super normal response. A super normal stimuli. Porn is a super stimuli. 28,000 users every second. That's right now. And right now. And right now. 28,000 users every second, spending about $3,000 every second. One in five mobile searches are for porn. I could list so many more stats on that. You don't need to hear it. I don't want your kids to ask you about it later, but please wrestle with it. These three things are these natural things. Now, here's the thing. Uh, a, uh, uh, is Dutch? Swiss. Uh, a Swiss physician, Paris. Periclesis, sorry, man, I tried to pronounce that name all day. Periclesis has the famous quote, the dose is the poison, right? Who's heard of that? This idea that the dose is the poison. So in general, it's not the thing itself that's fundamentally poisonous. It's the dose you take in. You can suck in enough oxygen to kill you. You can drink enough water to kill you. This is an old physician who just wanted to promote the idea. Listen, hey, uh, there are things that are poisonous, sure, and a little bit will kill you, but there are things that a medium amount will kill you, and there are things that a lot of it would kill you, but everything is poison in a dose. And and so I'm not here to say like, hey, if you've played video games, you've done fundamentally sinful things. If you've had a Krispy Kreme, you've done fundamentally sinful. That's not the point, right? If you looked at porn, you've done something fundamentally sinful. Don't get me wrong. Stop that. And we can talk about that. We can wrestle with that. But what I am saying is that these are things that are distracting us. They're pulling us away. What about other super stimuli in our culture? Let's talk about cell phones. You want to talk about cell phones? You don't. But let's do it. We're going to do it real quick. Sean Parker. Raise your hand if you know Sean Parker. Someone in here. Sean Parker was the Napster guy. Raise your hand if you had Napster on your computer. Yes! Oh, man, my people, right? Some of you are LimeWire people. I'm sorry. You were after the curve. Napster was a way to illegally download music that really upset Metallica. There you go. There's a crash course in history. So um, he also was the first uh, president of Facebook. Raise your hand if you know Facebook. Yeah, thanks. Right. Here's what Sean Parker said in a 2017 interview. He now calls himself a conscientious objector to social media, to most apps. Here's what he said. 
God only knows what it's referring to social media and the things that he created through Facebook. God only knows what it's doing to our children. The thought process that went into building these applications, Facebook being the first of them, was all about how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible? And that means that we need some sort of, uh, to give you a little dopamine hit every once in a while because someone liked or commented on your photo or a post or whatever. And that's going to get you to contribute more content. And that's going to get you more likes and comments. It's a social validation feedback loop. Exactly the kind of thing a hacker like myself would come up with because you're exploiting a vulnerability in human psychology. This guy was there at the beginning of this social media experience. And he's saying, hey, it's a, it's a loop. It's a validation loop. He's saying we're exploiting a vulnerability in human psychology. Tristan Harris, who used to work for Google, now he fights to make Hippocratic oaths for software designers because he sees the toxicity of the way that apps and social media and smartphones can drag people into an addiction. In an interview with The Atlantic, he said this, referring to tech addic- addiction, technology addiction. You could say that it's my responsibility to exert self-control when it comes to digital usage. But that's not acknowledging that there are a thousand people on the other side of the screen whose job is to break down whatever responsibility I can maintain. He's arguing that, listen, if you know Silicon Valley, every app on your phone, it's someone's job to make you look at it. Are you, are you, it's a game. It's a game of chess with the other developers. They're trying to... They're trying to exploit a vulnerability in your psychology. We want to believe that we're the customer with our devices, but the truth is we're the product. What's being sold? Our data, our attention. The average smartphone user touches their phone 2,617 times a day. You can go ahead and do the math on that if you want, if you're a real big nerd. That's not looking at your phone, right? So you have to understand, we're saying your average smartphone user looks at their phone 2,617 times a day. That's every touch, every swipe, right? But then the psychologists who are using that when they're talking about obsession and cell phone addiction, they're saying, hey, what else do you touch in your life 2,617 times a day? And, And if you're touching something that much, how much control and power does it have over you? The average user on the cell phone is three hours a day, but some uh, record as high as four to seven hours, depending on the study. You can go look up the studies. It's super boring. Lots of research goes into it, and a lot of it is demographical. The most recent study from the end of last year says 3.7 hours for most millennials, three hours for Gen X. Raise your hand if you're a Gen Xer. There you are. And then, uh, lost my notes there, 2.5 hours for boomers. Boomers, where you at? You're winning! You're winning! Good job! So... Silicon Valley, tech folks, sociologists, economists, they refer to all of this as the economy of attention. Say economy of attention. It is someone's job to monetize your attention, to pull you in. Someone's making money off your attention. And we believe we're in control. And it's a lie. Research from Microsoft Corp. shows that uh, the attention span dropped from the year 2000 to 2015. Have you heard about this? How humans' attention span slightly going down? It's really fascinating. So in 2015, when the study was done, they were looking at chunk from 2000 to 2015. Human attention span went from 12 seconds to 8 seconds, right? So our attention span lasts about 8 seconds before something drives us out. And obviously the, the digital revolution has something to do with that between 2000 and 2015. So we've gone from 12 seconds to 8 seconds. What's depressing about that stat is that goldfish have a 9 second attention span. So we're losing to the goldfish. Welcome to humanity. Man, isn't this uplifting? Welcome to church, guys. Stick with me. Andy Crouch has this to say in summation. Make no mistake. Tech isn't neutral. It makes a whole lot of predictions about who we are and how we want to live our lives. According to technology, we are busy, needing productivity apps and multitasking, but we're also bored, needing distraction at the flick of our fingers. And tech also tells us that we're lonely, providing us a virtual intimacy to replace the companionship we desperately need. Tech can persuade us that these issues are the new normal, that we just have to live with them. Let's make it real, just with your life. How many times have you missed out on a meaningful interaction with your girlfriend, boyfriend, with a friend, a best friend, a spouse, a kid, because you were distracted by a device? How many times has it turned into an argument? Come on! Like, man, there's some people I know that in our marriages, we've talked about this, and I wish I could out them, because, man, it's just like, we talk about this, it happens. How many times? You're like, 
Oh, you you looking at Facebook Reels again? No, this is my time. You said just five minutes. You just looked over and it was like, I was just looking at it right. You just stop it. I love my kids. You leave me. You're always talking to my phone. You guys just get in this huge argument. Are you on TikTok again? Stop it, mom. You don't know. TikTok knows me. But whatever. Come on. You've had this experience, this tension, right? You're always on Facebook, but you won't hold my hand or whatever it is. I don't know what you guys argue about, but this is a tension. Man, and you're all like, duh, we get this. Here's the point. We are hardwired to respond to the world around us. We're hardwired. God has put that in our brains and our minds. And the Bible tells us that all things were created to point us to the Lord and to humbly worship him. John 6, 40, this is the will of my father, that everyone would look to the son and believe in him and they should have eternal life. And I'll raise them up on the last day. Why don't we grow to know him deeply? Because we're distracted. Guilt and shame isn't the goal here. I'm not interested in your guilt and shame. I'm not interested in you feeling sad about this. I'm interested in the spirit guiding us to look to Jesus. That's why we talk about these things. Why don't we? I submit that we need something to distract us from the realities that we don't want to accept. See, we're limited as humans but we want to be limitless. There's all this talk about, about how we want to grow and we want our society to grow and we want our kids to grow up without limitations. We don't want them to have the hard things that we had and that's great and I'm all for that. I'm here for that, right? I'm here for those who are in socioeconomic statuses that have pushed them down. I'm here for those who have been in situations where they, they can't grow and we want to grow and see them develop into the creation that God's called them to be. That's fine. But what doesn't get enough lip service, what doesn't get enough of our attention and heart is that we are limited. And by the grace of God, we have limitations. And those limitations should point us to Him. In Genesis 1 and 2, God created everything and said it was good. And He put us there to rule above creation, beneath Him. That was our role, to rule with Him in a right relationship with Him. Things were perfect, things were great, and all we had to do was live in the limitation of He is above us. He is the one that's limitless. And we were to live in the limitation He had given us underneath Him above creation, beneath him. But then Genesis 3, verse 4, the serpent was crafty. The serpent came along. He said to the woman, should you, did God say you shouldn't eat this fruit? Start this conversation. The woman says, well, yeah, no, God said we shouldn't eat from this. We have this limitation God's given us. We have a limitation that God's given us, but we have all this other stuff, but we're limited to this. And, And the serpent said, well, hold on. You will surely not die if you eat the fruit. For God knows that when you eat the fruit, your eyes will be opened. I can't preach this verse enough. The economy of attention, the struggles in your life, it's because you believe your eyes need to be open to something else. You believe you need to be limitless. You, need, you believe you want more, you need more, you're entitled to more. Your eyes will be opened. You will be like God knowing good from evil. The Hebrew there is, you will be like God, you will be up, equated with him, and you'll get to decide good from evil. He's the one that's decided good from evil, but you don't need that limitation. You want to be limitless. And if you choose to eat the fruit, you will be limitless. Instead of looking to the Lord and his goodness and living in the limitation he's given us, they chose to eat the fruit so they could be limitless. Limitations point us to the God who is limitless. But this lie that evil has to make us limitless, it puts all the pressure on us to grow to be more. What can you do? What can you accomplish? And it leads us more and more into a society that never ends. There's no boundaries. Depression, anxiety, anger weighed down by our limits instead of allowing them to look to the Lord. What are some of our limitations? Let's talk, let's talk about this grace God's given us. Here's a list. Our body. We are not omnipresent Although the cell phone is a great experience or experiment in omnipresence, despite what your cell phone has told you, you can't be multiple places at once. My schedule is probably more booked than yours. I try to cram so many things in and it's killed me for a long, long, long time. You just do more and more because I can, I'm David Newton. I can be everywhere. I can plan everything. I can do this meeting, this meeting, this meeting, this meeting. And then no one feels loved because I'm hurried, rushed, and I hate my life so quickly because I can't be everywhere. But I want to believe I'm limitless. I'm David Newton, Right? Our body, we're not omnipresent. Our mind, we know in part, we think in part, as Paul would say. We have a limitation of knowledge. We say this a lot in shepherd meetings. Uh, we've talked about it in our life group. In general, we, we just have to acknowledge that we have a limitation of knowledge. There are things of God that we're not fully going to get. And we're going to do our best to describe Trinity, and we're going to teach it here in a few weeks. But 
we have a limitation of knowledge. There are things we just don't get right now because he is above us. And that should point us to him. We have a limitation of knowledge. You don't know what you don't know. Our IQ or intelligence or whatever you want to call it. There, it's just true that no matter how much I study and no matter how much I want to try to preach better and to be awesome and, and to be super knowledgeable, I'm just going to be limited compared to people who are more brilliant than I am. It's just the fact. Lee Idle can look at a spreadsheet and figure it out and do stuff with nuclear reactor thingamabobs, and I never will. That's just not where my intelligence is at. I have a limitation there. Gifting. There are people who are gifted, more gifted preachers than I am. There are people who are more gifted communicators. There are more people who are more gifted parents than you, whatever it is. We are limited by our giftings, our capacity. Man, I don't need to go into a long introvert versus extrovert conversation with you, but some of you have this kind of relational capacity. It's like, this is all I can have, and I've got these people, and this is my little capacity. And some of you are like me, and you're like, everyone come in. We have all the relationships, and we can hold everyone in our arms lovingly, right? Extrovert, who are my people? That a couple of you, that's fine. You're all like, I don't, that analogy was awkward. Don't touch your little chest again. That was weird. Sorry, sorry. Anyway, so our family of origin. Some of us are just limited by the families we grew up in, whether it was a single parent or, or two parents that, that were unhealthy or healthy is a relative term. You understand there's a tension with family origin, socioeconomic origin, right? Some of us just grew up in a situation where we didn't have money. We didn't have the same privileges as some, some other people. And I'm sorry if you disagree with that, but it's just a fact. Some people start off with a leg up and some people limp just the way it is, right? And the, the gospel deals with that, by the way. Season of life. Some people are single. Some people are in college. Some people are parents. Some people are taking care of aging parents. Some people are in between. The sandwich generation trying to deal with stuff. And that's a limitation that we have. Our lifespan. Here's the newsflash. You're all going to die. None of us know whose funeral I'm doing this year. But I'll do someone's funeral in here this year, probably, or someone you love, because we're going to die, because we have these limitations. And these limitations should point us to the Lord. They should point us to the God who is limitless, who is everything. So we humbly say, God, you are above us. We want to worship and seek you. We're missing something. But instead, evil creeps in and says, no, you can be like God. At the risk of offending or upsetting and trying to delicately say the right words in a hard, hard, hard conversation. There's so much to be said about the gender revolution and the tensions in our culture. And as Christians, we have to be aware of gender dysphoria and that there is psychological issues. And that there are things that we need to lovingly welcome. And there are things that, that need meaningful, loving discussion and counseling and help. Because there are psychological, uh, there are uh, mental disorders at play. But so much of the gender revolution conversation isn't about gender. It's not about sexuality. It's not about biology. It's about ideology. You can't limit me, and my body can't even limit me because I'm above my body. It doesn't matter what my chromosomes and what my sex says. My brain is above my body. Nothing limits me. You can be like God. You can define good from evil. We have our phones telling us we're limitless, ever going, scroll, do whatever we want. You don't have any limitations, and it's all a lie. John 8, 44, when Jesus talks about the devil, he says, he, the devil, is a liar. He's a father of lies. He's been a liar from the beginning. Ephesians 6, 12, for we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers of this present age, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The devil wants to pull us away to bring us to disorder and chaos. If you heard the news about the Grammys, if you see all the celebrities that have come out and said things like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. I just don't follow the outdated Bible. Man, I could list three of those celebrities off the top of my head. Like our kids, us, we're being drawn into this narrative. There is no truth. It's all a lie. You could be like God. You could decide good from evil. You don't need to take Satan or Jesus or spirituality seriously. It's all a joke. We can make fun of it to the Grammys because it's all silliness. That's the lie. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. That's what Romans tells us. Here's the issue. The issue is that there's no vision for eternity. 
We believe that we are limitless for this life. I can acquire what I want. I can obtain what I want. It's this life. YOLO. Do you follow your own path, chart your own course. Love is whatever you say it is. Your life is yours to own. You do whatever you want. You are limitless. We want to live limitlessly in a life on our own terms, our own control. And it leads us to be hurried, distracted, anxious, arrogant, depressed, angry, on and on and on. John 17, 3. Memorize this verse. This is eternal life. You want to know what eternal life is? You want the limitless life? You want to grow and say, I can live forever. I can do whatever I want. Jesus tells you, this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God. There is no other God but Yahweh. This is eternal life. You want that limitless life? You want this thing that the cell phone promises you, the Grammys promise you? All this is it that they know you, the only true God, and they know Jesus. Culture is going to tell you that you do what makes you happy. You are what consumes you. You are what you consume. You are what you dress. It's all about efficiency, pleasure. Live how you want. Obtain what you want and then die. Everyone will move on. Jesus says, no, no, no. This is eternal life. Have you lost your vision for eternity? Eternal life is knowing the one true God in Jesus. The Bible is very clear that we are all heading towards two paths. Life in Christ, wisdom, death, eternal separation, foolishness. That's the Bible in a nutshell. There's those who look to Jesus and they will have eternal life. And there are those who will only see this life and then they will be eternally separated and punished because they didn't look to Jesus. This is eternal life that they know you. Have you lost your vision for eternity? This is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I'll raise them up on the last day. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. Guys, this is the gospel. See, we look at this list of limitations and all these things we have, and it makes us as 21st century Western Americans say, oh, I can grow to be more. I want more for myself. I want better for myself. And there's nothing wrong with that in itself. But when that becomes your main focus, your main inspiration life, then all of a sudden, everything's about you. And we preach this every week because it's so important. Because if you're like me, you struggle with it over and over. Everything has an orbit. It's all for me. It's all about me. And it all comes back to this tension. But this is eternal life, that we know God and we know Jesus, this intimate relationship with him where we know him. We have an intimate connection with him, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. You are limited and separated from him by your sin. Your body will give out and die. These are not things God intended for you. God wants to give you eternal life and a right relationship through Jesus Christ. And your only hope is Jesus because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Only Jesus took on all your sin, all your distraction, all your hurriedness, all the ways that you ignore him, all the ways that we spit in his face. He took it to the cross and he died bearing your sin. Three days later, he rose again so that those who believe in him would have eternal life. They'd be made right. They'd be changed. How do we grow to know God. I want to get real practical here in, in the last few minutes that we have. What do we do about all this? Thanks for telling me about Sean Parker, Pastor David. Thanks for telling me about Goldfish's attention span. What do I do, right? Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, or all your might. Jesus requoted this as the greatest commandment. He added a part of Leviticus onto it, say, hey, this is everything. You want to know what everything is? Love God and love others. But the reason we pull it from Deuteronomy is because that first word, hear, O Israel, you know what that word is? This is what this prayer is called. Shema, yeah, the Shema. You know what it means? Pay attention. Man, when you're talking to your kids and you say, hear me, listen to me, you're not just saying, hey, randomly turn to me and turn your brain and your ears off, but look at me. What you're saying is pay attention, listen, obey. What God is saying here is listen, obey, pay attention, Israel. Look, look at me and listen and pay attention, pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. The Lord is one. He's above everything. He's utterly unique. He's different from everything else. He's above everything else. So you will love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Pay attention. We cannot love the Lord if we're not paying attention. We must be paying attention, listening, obey, because it's love. And of course it's countercultural. Of course it's counterintuitive. Why should it be easy? 
We have the world, the flesh, and the devil against us. I know it's not easy to spend alone time with the Lord. I know it's not easy to be unhurried and be patient. I know it's not easy to have disciplines with your cell phone and electronic devices. Why should it be easy? What do you do in your life that's meaningful that is easy? Is marriage easy? Is singleness easy? Is parenting easy? Is going to college easy? Come on! This is the way God created us to live, in a right relationship with Him, loving Him. The devil is a liar. There are two things we want to be thinking about. One, we become what we pay attention to. What we put our mind on shapes our character. Jesus said in Matthew 6, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of light. Or sorry, but if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? What you set before you. That's why we read this morning. I set the Lord before me. What you put in front of your eyes, what you pay attention to. Shema! What you pay attention to. Is it light? Is it darkness? 2 Kings 17, 15. We did a sermon on this many, many weeks ago. But Israel's ultimate demise, here's what it says. They went after false, worthless idols, and they became false and worthless. This is the cry of evil for our lives, to bring disorder and chaos, to make everything about us so we become worthless. We become eternally separated and punished and away from God, worthless, because we decided to chase after worthless things. We decided to worship the creation over the creator. There's a multi-billion dollar international organization, many of them, that are trying to monetize your attention. People are getting rich, and we're getting distracted and addicted. There's so much at stake here. And I know you hear so many different posts and so many people talking about how you need to pay attention and how you need to be careful with your cell phone device, all this. And I'm sorry, I'm just another old fogey telling you about your cell phone. But the Bible says to pay attention. That you need to pay attention or you're not going to love the Lord. The Bible says that the devil is a liar and he's trying to distract you. And, and I hope, as we shepherd here, that no one is so arrogant that they walk away thinking, oh, I got this figured out. I'm good. I, got, I, don't, I don't need to hear this. May we not be wise in our own eyes. We cannot love distracted. We cannot seek the Lord distracted. We cannot live like Jesus' distraction. Distraction robs us from receiving and giving love. We've already seen the equation here. Unhurriedness or hurriedness is incompatible with love. Distraction is incompatible with love because we can't love the Lord if we're distracted. Attention is the precursor to worship and adoration. That's the second one. Attention is the precursor to worship and adoration, to love. Time and attention are some of the most powerful tools we have for love. Who have you loved well by giving partial time and attention to? Like how many marriages have been split apart because they won't spend time together? Because they won't give each other attention. How many dating relationships have you broke off with? Because he's a schmuck who won't text you back. He won't listen to you. Hey, girls, if he's not texting you back and paying attention to you, giving you time, break up with him now. He is a schmuck, right? Huh? Huh? Come on. Back me up, parents. Like, come on. Like, this matters. These things matter. This is how we show love. Time and attention. It's no wonder evil has us hurried and distracted. Hurry and distraction are incompatible with living and loving like Jesus. Let's get real practical. I want to list some practical applications. We've got a paper here that we've made with applications on both sides. But I want to spend the next uh, negative two minutes, sorry. Uh, I want to spend the next, uh, next couple of minutes just talking about some practical applications. This is how my wife and I do this. This is not a law. These are not things that you have to do, right? I'm not telling you go do this so that you'll be righteous and holy. No, no, no. These are ways that my wife and I have wrestled with looking to Jesus and every single thing I mentioned we've screwed up this week at some point, but they're things we're wrestling with because you can't be apathetic about these things. You're not going to accidentally become undistracted. You're not going to accidentally start falling in love with the Lord. We have to pursue these things. In fact, we've said love is commitment and sacrifice. You don't fall into love. You climb into love. You fall into infatuation. You fall into sexual desire. Those are things you fall into. You climb into love because love is commitment and sacrifice. Here's some applications. Start where you're at. Pay attention. Shema. Look at what you're looking at. Like right now, what are you looking at? What, 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 gives, what gives time? If you're saying, hey, you said 3.7 hours a day, but my screen time says I'm 2.5, boom, I'm beating the average. That's fine. That's two and a half hours a day you're spending on your cell phone. Why? Is that essential? Why does it break down? Like, like, use your screen time and decide, what am I looking at? 
Some people have talked about a digital detox where you just say, hey, uh, this is actually from Silicon Valley. These guys have been doing this. They will take weeks and set aside their phone just to get away from these things because it helps them program better how to draw people to them. It's super interesting if you read the research on it. So it's kind of a backwards way. We're saying, hey, maybe sometime just have a time every day, daily, weekly, monthly, yearly rhythms. How do you set your phone aside? Say, man, I don't need this. I need to detox myself to reset my brain. We could talk so much about uh, neuroplasticity and, and uh, neurological pathways and the ways they redefine our cell phone. Uh, don't want to bore you with that. Have a digital Sabbath. When does your phone stop being the most important thing in your day? In our, in our house, we parent our phones uh, just like our kids go to bed uh, before us and they wake up before us. Nikki and I try to put our phones away. Sometimes I have my kid go hide my phone from me. Uh, like, hey, Cohen, will you go hide this? Elsie, will you go hide this? Because then uh, it kind of puts a guilt on me because if I have to ask my kid to go find my phone, then it's like, ooh, I'm, that's bad. So then they go hide it and then it's done for the night. And it communicates to them, you know what's more important than my phone? My family. You are more important than my phone, right? So maybe you need to learn how to parent your phone. Put it to bed before you go to bed. You get up before your phone gets up. Get a real alarm clock. We got, a, we got an alarm clock that wakes us up. It's like a bright light that like illuminates our room. Nikki hates it because the light wakes her up before me. But anyway, uh, get a real alarm clock. Listen, you already have postures and patterns in your life of what you pay attention to. We're suggesting maybe we give those things critical attention. Say, hey, maybe we need to pay attention to Shema so that we can love the Lord. Uh, no devices in kids' rooms for obvious reasons, porn, violence, things they shouldn't come in contact with. Like We just don't, don't do that. And if you do have to have a device in their room, make it a dumb device. If you don't know how to do that, I used to work for Geek Squad. I could show you how to do this. In fact, maybe you struggle with these things and you're just unwilling to do that. But let me talk to you right now. Maybe you look at porn or maybe you struggle with TikTok or maybe you're just spending way too much time on the Insta, whatever it is. Let me tell you something. You know you could limit your phone yeah, Apple's made a big deal about it, and all the smartphones have made a big deal about how you can put your own limitations on it. But if you have someone else password it, then your phone becomes controlled by whatever standard you set, and you can't reset it. I don't have the app store on my phone. I can't possibly download an app on my phone unless Nikki puts in a passcode. And that might make you think I'm the most unself-controlled jerk in here. That's fine. You can think really bad of me, but I don't struggle with porn anymore. God has set me free from that. And I'm not addicted anymore because I put patterns in my life and things in my life to say, I'm going to set the Lord before me. I'm going to put Jesus before me. Six weeks ago, I turned my phone, five weeks ago, I turned my phone to grayscale. It's super boring. If you look at my phone, it's all in grayscale. There's a black and white version of my kids. It's boring. It's uninteresting to look at. I did that because I want to set the Lord before me. It's not a law for you, but maybe try it. Say, what would it look like if I put my phone on grayscale for two weeks? Would it make me look at it less? Would it make my endorphins function a little differently? The neurological pathways get altered to where I don't need to look at my phone. I don't need those things to control me. Because Sean Parker says, who helped create all this stuff, it's designed to control you. So maybe you should take a step in. We said no devices in Ken's room. You can lock it down. Don't make the TV the center point of your home. Uh, there's a book here called The TechWise Family. Uh, buy this book, even if you don't have a family. If you're a grandma, if you're single, if you're a 14-year-old kid who loves to read, buy this book and read it. Uh, they have another one called The TechWise Life. It's by Andy Crouch. I'm a big fan of Andy Crouch. It's a great book. Um, if you look uh, back there on Carrie's table and over here, we've got this list from that book, and it's some ideas for how to live in a tech-wise world, how to say, hey, we're going to take control of this thing so it doesn't take control of me. And on the back here are some scriptures, some things that I wrote out, and some ideas that I just listed here. If you want this sheet, there's a whole bunch right here. There's some right over there, and there's some back there. Take it. Wrestle with this. The whole goal here is to look to Jesus. There's a couple things I got to say as we close. If you do the research on this stuff, Shema, pay attention, church. I know we're going long. Give me your eyes for one more minute. If you do the research on this stuff, psychologists, when they talk about screens and Netflix and mobile devices and cell phones, the language they use is obsession. When you, when you research the developers and even the people who are getting away from this stuff, the language they use is obsession. And, and if not obsession, I've got to look at it. I've got to look at it. The next phase they use is addiction. Those are the languages of psychologists. Not Pastor David who's trying to try to control your life. Forget that. I don't need to control your life. King Jesus controls your life. The people who research this more than you use obsession and addiction. Listen to me. When you call out someone on their addiction, what do they respond with? 
It's okay if you're angry, if you're tense, if you're ignoring me, if you're passive, if you're shifting the blame. Oh, my spouse does it more than me. Oh, well, I get to do this because of da-da-da. That's fine. That's fine. Just recognize that psychologists back you up and say, of course you feel that way. Because the relationship that your phone has, that it's designed to do, is to create obsession and addiction in your life. And we look to Jesus. The reason that we struggle to grow to know God deeply is because we're distracted. And Jesus said, this is the will of my Father. That everyone who looks to the Son, pays attention, Shema, everyone who gives attention, who gazes to the Son and believes in Him, He'll have eternal life and I will raise Him up on the last day. I want to encourage you to wrestle with during the response time, how do I look to Jesus? I don't know how to tell you to respond to this. There's a whole list of ways you can respond. There's some things that might have come out in this conversation. But here's what I do want to see you do. I want to see you wrestle with your relationship with prayer. Your intimate relationship with God where you communicate with Him. Your scripture relationship. How do I read His Word to actually know God? And your church relationship. Prayer, scripture, and church. What are those relationships in your life like? Because you don't have a shot at seeking Jesus without those things. You don't have a shot at looking to Him. And so I'm asking you to shema, to pay attention to how you seek Jesus through prayer, through scripture, through your relationship with the church. We look to Jesus who is looking back at us in love, wisdom, goodness, and truth, and life, transforming us to live in his love, wisdom, goodness, truth, and life. Are you giving him your first moments of the day, your last moments of the day? Are you giving him the first moments of your week? Are you giving him the first givings of your income? The first what? What is it that you need to shema? You need to pay attention. You need to look to Jesus in. What is it that you're not giving him? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm going to read John 6, 40 again, and then we're going to, we're going to worship together. I don't know how you need to respond. If you need to, if you need to join the church because your relationship with the church has been off and you feel like God's been leading you, man, I need to join a church. Maybe you need to get baptized because you realize, man, I've never made that public declaration. Maybe you don't know Jesus. You're like, man, I hear all this stuff, but I'm just so distracted. I'm so pulled from Jesus. I don't know him. I need to know Jesus. If this is eternal life that I know God and I know Jesus, I don't know him. This is your moment. Thank God that he's brought you here. Thank God that you have this moment to look to Jesus. If you want to stand, I'm going to read this scripture and we're going to respond with worship. If you need to come and pray with someone, I'll be down here. John 6, 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise them up on the last day. Father, I pray that you'd guide us as we respond. I pray your spirit would move, that you would speak to us on, on how we respond to these things. I pray you would unveil to us the lies of, of the devil, of, of the world, the flesh, the things that are pulling us away from you. Teach us to pay attention, to Shema, to you, to listen and obey. I pray for those who don't know you. God, I pray for the stubborn people here like me who don't want to wrestle with this, who want to say, I've got this all figured out. I pray your spirit would pierce through that and you would help us recognize the toxicity of our culture and the things that are drawing us away from you. May we not be like the, the, the Israelites and people through history who worship worthless idols and become worthless. God, I pray that your spirit would transform us by the renewing of our minds, that we would look to Jesus. Help us to look to Jesus, Father. Thank you for this time as we respond to you. Thank you for your love for us, for being here with us always.